everyone, welcome to the Yam Podcast. My name is Mel Hackling and I am your host. We are super excited to have another episode of the Yam Podcast because today we have our first mama who was interviewed in the Mama Comfort Toolkit. We invited several of the moms back and you hear them in the future episodes as well. But this is our first one, Amber Sawyer. Oh my gosh, anybody in Singapore, shout out. I know you know her. She is amazing. She has since moved out of Singapore. So she is now in Yorca, Spain, I believe is the name of the city. And she's starting up her own like yoga stuff there. And I cannot, I'm just, I, I'm just jealous for whoever is in that city and, and is able to enjoy inner stuff. She is an amazing yoga teacher. I mean, true embodiment of the yogic practices. I admire deeply. When I think of someone that I know of who has truly, truly embodied the yogi principles like in action and through and through practices it, she is like my guiding star and my shining light. It is no wonder that people call her Angel Amber. And this episode, holy mother of lordness, she gets really vulnerable with us guys. We're super blessed with having her share one of the most difficult periods of her time, which was right after birth. And I'm just going to let you guys get right into it and just share because it is so good. I cannot wait for you to hear it. So this short notice is to let you know that the Yam podcast does have adult language. So if you have any little ones around, please put your headphones on now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Yam podcast. My name is Nal Hasbeen and I'm the host. And today we have a very special guest. A guest that I personally admire so much. So Amber is one of our beautiful mamas who had an interview with me for the Mama Toolkit, Comfort Toolkit product that I was doing the interviews for, which is where the entire Yam podcast idea came from, is actually from one of the mothers. And Amber was one of the later interviews. And The things that she shared with me, I think, were so important to share with a bigger audience. And especially because she is a very deep-bodied practitioner of the yogic principles. One that I think truly, like, embodies it. Her clarity of words when explaining this, I think, would will really also help, like, enlighten people. So I'm going to read you Amber's bio. She is phenomenal. Welcome to gasp with me at certain points. As an embodied facilitator, Amber shares the joy of living through holistic practices of yoga, active meditations, elemental wellness, and pre-postnatal support. With more than 20 years of study and practice in yoga, Ayurveda, and meditation, as well as a PhD in biomedical engineer. What? In the field of stem cell tissue repair, Amber brings a unique perspective on healing and self-discovery through the influence of scientific and ancient wisdoms. From 2009 to 2018, Amber founded a community in the heart of Singapore known as Satsanga. 
which I have actually been a part of, which is beautiful, where she has offered and organized weekly active meditation, yoga classes, and community events after enjoying the birth of her little one in 2015. Amber's work primarily focuses on empowering women to have a conscious pregnancy, birth experience, and preparedness for motherhood. Currently, she serves as a birth assistant, teaches pre- and postnatal yoga, as well as offers her own 85-hour yoga alliance, embodied women, prenatal and postpartum yoga teacher training, which I want to do biannually. She runs this. In 2019, Amber founded Embodied Women Yoga, which is a platform for courses, CEUs, yoga teacher trainings, and resources related to women's health, particularly pregnancy and postpartum. So I'm going to link her bio and her website and all her activities and things. So anyone who is in Singapore, this is where it's at. Okay. You got to go to Amber. When I was working in Singapore at the National University, working as a research associate in my previous life as a public health epidemiologist, that's when I actually first got trained as a yoga teacher but before that I was attending yoga events and all these things and Amber's was my weekly go-to's until she no longer hosted them in her house. I think other people like continued and doing them but now she has continued practices and things like that so wherever I wish I would be wherever Amber is so if you guys are in Singapore please go to one of her classes like you will love it it's amazing and she's awesome so today maybe I thought you know what the first question I thought is that that I don't know is how you got into yoga in the first place yeah this is a really nice question yoga found me in 1999 and Uh I had been a competitive gymnast for 14 years so I already had that aspect and quality in my life and at the time I was working on my what was I doing I was in university at that time finishing university and I had did gymnastics for quite a while I stopped gymnastics when I was about 15 or 16 Mm -hmm. years old came across yoga through a Rodney Yee video oh yeah I do (laughs) Yeah, my friends had a little video of him, so I that's how I came across it and uh-huh. started just playing around and I realized, oh wow, this is familiar to gymnastics and also has a little bit more of a spiritual quality to it, yeah. which I was really interested in. And then in 2000, I took my first Bikram hot yoga class. In oh, wow. And after that, I was like, this is for me. I love it. So I entered through the physical practice door. Very quickly, I started to come across different teachers who showed me a whole broader aspect of yoga, getting more into the breath work and the meditation. And I never left it. I feel like I've been in a relationship with yoga for more than 20 years, it's ebbs and flows like any relationship. It's gone to different depths at different times, but we've never left one another since then. <laughs> it was a match that was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't know that you had a gym- gymnastic background because I do too. That's actually, uh, yeah. And so that that's funny. I didn't know that. That's cool. Did you meet Rodney ever like in no. person or this was like just a video? Videos, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So that's where it started. So tell us a little bit about like how you even got started with like 
teaching yoga? Like, where was the transition from a PhD in biomedical engineering <laughs> into doing yeah. yoga full time? Yeah, because I fell so in love with the practice of yoga, and at the time I ha- was finishing university and then started graduate school right away, and I was working on my master's in biomedical yeah. engineering. And I always found refuge in my yoga practice. It was really what just created so much balance and harmony for me to be able to de-stress in quite a stressful environment. It was a man's world that I was in and it was, yeah, it was very stressful and demanding. And at the time I was trying to complement that with competitive cycling and it just, I found that it just didn't go together. I was just competing all the time, whether it was on cycling, road cycling, or it was in my classes, in my exams. It was always just felt so much competition. And when I got deeper into to yoga, it was such a beautiful balance because finally I could drop the competition and be able yeah. to just go inwards to myself. and. So it was a huge refuge for me. It's why it became such a significant part of my life. And and then following that, when I moved to Singapore, I got recruited to come here to, after my PhD, I was recruited to come here for a postdoc position. And so my husband at the time, ex-husband now, we both came to Singapore to do this. And again, I was in a very stressful environment and I did my postdoc for three years here with a lot of a lot of stress, a lot of ethical challenges. It was a quite a difficult time, very rewarding and had beautiful moments too, but it was quite difficult. And while I was doing my postdoc, I was also apprenticing with an Ayurvedic practitioner on the side because I had always been interested in Ayurveda for a very long time and naturopathy. And just, I was always curious, how can I create that bridge between the sciences between biomedical sciences and engineering and into the more esoteric, into Ayurveda, yoga, naturopathy. Mm-hmm. And, and then eventually I made a very big decision to leave academic research. That was in 2008. And, and then I found refuge in my yoga practice because like most people who make a big career change, I had no idea what to do. And I was having trouble in my marriage. I was having trouble with my work. And it was a really discombobulated time where everything seemed so unknown and not clear and not right and didn't feel aligned. And so I went to the place where I knew to go, which was deeper into my own practices to find a little bit of inner clarity and inner peace. And probably in a very cliche way, I went to India and left roots in Singapore, but I went to India for a few months and I took my first yoga training there. It was not a teacher training, but it was a four week course at the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandaram. And mm. Jessica Chai was alive at that time. So I was mm. able to study directly with him and wow. with some other spectacular teachers. and. That, I would say, planted the first seed for me to start sharing my yoga practice. Okay, so tell people who who don't know who Desikacharya is, please do share with them, like, who he is a little bit. His father was one of the, Krishnamacharya was, is considered one of the grandfathers of yoga. And there's been several pioneers who have brought the ancient teachings more into a westernized format to spread the popularity of yoga. So his father was one who was one of the, 
I would say probably had one of the greatest impacts because his students are people like Ayengar and his son Deskechar and I'm missing some other important names at the moment that I'm Indra, Indra Devi, Indra Devi yeah. yeah. And so he had a lot of well-known students who helped to carry and promote yoga more to the West. And so his son at that time started the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandiram, and they've done a lot of teaching through there. They still are. They're quite prolific in their teachings, and they run some really good courses, especially yoga therapy courses. After that experience there, when I came back to Singapore, I still didn't have a way of making any money here. And at the mm. time, we didn't want to leave because my ex-husband found a nice job doing things he loved. So we weren't quite ready to leave. And so it was my previous stressed out science colleagues that wanted to practice yoga, learn yoga and meditation because they saw that it helped me a lot during our time together. And they said, we don't have a job, so maybe you <laughs> teach us. And that's how, it's, that's how it started. I never intended to be a yoga teacher. It was never, in fact, I didn't take an official yoga teacher training for many years after that. I was almost reluctant to do it because feeling that, what is that syndrome called? The imposter syndrome. I had that big time thinking, who am I to teach about something that's so ancient? And so I had a lot of that going on, but my friends were just constantly supporting and asking. Yeah, my friends started asking me to share more with them. So they came to my apartment, it's the same apartment I'm in right now. In fact, this room was where I started sharing yoga practices and meditation. And when I had been in India, I also met a really fascinating teacher there who introduced me to Osho Active Meditations. And I decided to bring him over to Singapore to share with some of my friends that were coming for sessions in my home. And he came in the fall of 2009. And Is this the Osho? The um, Osho? Like yeah, the guy who wrote Osho's, all the quotes? His sannyasin, yes. His sannyasin, one of oh, his... Wow devotees is who I met and so he came and brought the Osho meditations and the methods to Singapore oh, in my wow. home and I had gathered some of my friends and we were all so inspired by these meditation methods because they were fun they were easy to learn they were non-dogmatic and they were mm. just so effective so after this teacher left I continued to offer the meditation methods weekly in addition to yoga and so that's how it all started. And that became the basis of Satsanga, which ended up being the community that I ran here for almost 10 years and having weekly meditation, yoga. And so the friends brought more friends and then it ended up sustaining me for almost a decade here in Singapore, sharing these methods. So I would say that I organically became a yoga guide and meditation <laughs> guide. It wasn't ever a goal that I had, but somehow existence arranged it in such a perfect way that it just happened. And I've been the wonderful recipient of many of these meditations and just being in your home and in your aura and in your presence is already like you enter into a meditation as well. So tell us where how was it for you to have a baby or, or maybe you could share with people how what was your personal practice before and how did motherhood change that or like how did it reveal also things for you for people who don't know like what yogis do this is probably the only time that they're going to hear like the depths or the details of like 
into a yogi's life? I can say my life changed tremendously and my practice deepened in a way that I never imagined or expected after having a baby. Prior to being pregnant, my life was very, very amber-centric and it was all following my own intuition and what seemed best for me in the moment and also for my husband, which is a new husband, by the way, so, <laughs> who I met in 2014. And so we were creating a life together. And my practice up to that point was very, let me see if I can find the right word. It had gone through so many different transitions and changes. So at one point in my life, it was very aesthetic and very rigorous, where I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning every day, and I would do a two to three hour practice this would include asanas, it would include ritual, it would include chanting and meditation and breath work. And it was done at a particular time in a particular way. I studied with many different teachers, some who claim they're enlightened beings. I went, stayed in ashrams. I meditated in caves. I've done 56 days of silence living in ashrams where I'm the only woman and the only foreigner. And so I've had some very enriching, beautiful, profound, incredible experiences on the path of yoga and have met pretty phenomenal teachers. Also, I've met teachers who are very not genuine. And so I've had some really difficult encounters there as well. So all of this has contributed to my path. So my practice was very rich prior to having my daughter. Mm. And it was very, I can only say it was very amber-centric. I could spend as much time as I wanted with my asanas, with my meditation. And I felt in my mind at that time, I'm really getting somewhere. I am touching something within that is everlasting and eternal. And I've worked on all these qualities and virtues, and I'm really getting somewhere. And I felt very content and at peace. And it was reflected by the people around me who saw me the same way. So I was living in a really beautiful world. And before I continue, can you see me? My video I can see you perfectly. I'm so happy. This is making me so happy. Yeah. I would say I was cruising along in a very special place and I had some pretty high views of myself and, and I had a lot of humility. I wasn't going around with big ego, but I also thought that I was doing pretty well. And yeah, you're like, then, you're, you're getting there. Yeah, I thought I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> and, and I had a beautiful pregnancy. I had an amazing birth experience. All the yoga, breath work, meditation was instrumental, I think, in the birth that I had. And it was phenomenal. And after the birth, when I entered into the postpartum, especially the first, those first tender years, I would say the first three to four years, my world got turned completely upside down and mm-hmm. everything changed. I felt scattered in infinite pieces and was in a deep process of trying to call all those pieces of myself home to grieve the previous configuration and to give space for a new configuration. And there was a lot of processing, many layers. And I can say my practices of presence and awareness were instrumental in this path to be able to see what was happening and to have clearer hindsight to also meet what was arising in the moment. And for sure, my practices changed 180. 
no longer did I have an amber-centric practice. Now this is about keeping a tiny baby alive and learning who I was in this new format and allowing an identity change, finding a new way to relate to my partner and as a triad, no longer as a dyad, going from feeling so competent in my life to suddenly incompetent as a mother, as I was learning how to be a mother and becoming a mother. So there was many things that changed. No longer can I afford the time to get up at 4.30 in the morning and to have beautiful, serene, undisturbed hours of practice where I feel content. <laughs> and instead, it's like constant triggers, so much unpredictability, so much spontaneity, so much out of routine, new patterns, new rhythms, things that change constantly, stress that where I had been in such a quiet place before, now there were all these crying baby, they're trying to figure out how do I settle her, what does she need, what is she communicating, sleep deprivation, no help in the house other than my wonderful husband who is amazing support, but no extended family, no helpers. And it was a really tough time. So my practice became that. And it took me a while to see that this is my practice now, but it became that. How can I show up fully to what is happening right now, hold, holding space for myself and what I'm feeling and also holding space for this tiny human in front of me who this is her only way to communicate. How can I drop into this moment with so much presence without expectation and surrender to the outcome that is like true karma yoga in practice and true bhakti yoga in practice and raja yoga in practice, yana yoga, all of it was there wrapped up so perfectly to where I really started to understand why being a householder has such the pot potential for a profound depth of practice. It's a very different scenario than being in a cave by yourself or being in an ashram by yourself. Very different paths, both extremely meaningful. But this asked me to see my practice with a different aperture and a different lens and to be able to see the value in this type of practice where it becomes moment to moment. It's not as scheduled. It's not a two hour event you do in the morning before sunrise. It is an ongoing 24-7 practice that's mm. asking you how can you surrender to this moment and how can you lean into what is arising with full equanimity that's what it's asking of you and one thing that I like thought of before or I just see you and I'm like I love and respect your practice and I really truly see how you embody it even and to actually make it clear to the audience like we don't know each other that well but I feel her and I know if somebody walks on the street and then you're like yeah they know what they're doing when it comes to like yoga like, this is how I see Amber and also like when I think that I also think that I am very aware that everyone, even someone like Amber, will have challenges. But what type of challenges would Amber get? Because Amber is much more capable when it comes to these awarenesses and things like that. So that means her test, her like baggage, her little wild pile of like treasure of tests and difficulties 
is going to be like next level. There's so many things that you shared with me before, but what basically happened or something you shared with me about how these yoga practices have helped you, but how did it not help you in some aspects of motherhood, which I find super interesting as a yogi myself. And as other yoga teachers and yoga practitioners, I think this will be so helpful for you to say. And also for people who are not yogis and who have a fantasy dream about what yogis do and they're like, oh, it's, oh my God, they're so great. What is the, what was the thing that, how was, were these practices not helpful for you? And basically what did you do after? This is a beautiful, (laughs) deep question. Trying to feel into where to start with this. And even the part of me is, do you really want to go there? Yeah, we should go there because it's really important. So there's a, this might be a little bit longer answer than maybe what you imagined, but I have to go back in time a little bit is that throughout my life, like every human, I had some really difficult times. And things that were so difficult to deal with that I, I, this is part of the reason why I ran towards spirituality, because mm-hmm. I found it gave me a way to, to make sense of what was happening in my life and also to push it away a little bit. Mm-hmm. And like there's spiritual a spiritual bypassing yeah. as they call it. Yeah, that's right. So there's a there's something very healthy that's mixed up in there which is honoring what you have the cap the capacity to deal with in any given moment because sometimes we don't have the capacity to deal with things that are either very traumatic or just happen to be not in that moment we don't have the tools to deal with it or the space or the support yeah the support and so Spirituality can sometimes create a buffer where we can push those things aside and like breathe, breathe them to the side so that we can find whatever is untouched that's remaining behind all of it. And we can connect to that. And it gives a way to cope in the present moment. I think there can, this can be very healthy in the sense that it cultivates awareness, self-awareness, and just giving some breathing space and being able to arrive in the present moment and to say, what is in my present moment? What's possible right now? Okay, this is what I can do now. And it can be a very beautiful practice in this way. And at the same time, it's a slippery slope because if we keep pushing everything away, then we're not dealing with it. And what happens if we don't deal with things? Our body is a crystallized mind. So our body takes it. And I have become very good at pushing things into my body in very deep places, not intentionally, of course, but on hindsight, I see that if I wasn't able to deal with certain things happening in my life, and I wasn't having any outlet anywhere, I wasn't speaking to people about it, I didn't have professional support, I really kept things to myself, and through spirituality, told myself, that's impermanent, it's not me, I'm not identifying with that, I'm something beyond, I don't need to get angry over that, because it's not who I am. It's just a story. It's a costume. I can take it off. I'm touching something that is much greater and that is untouched by any of those things. So I became very strong in that practice. And Mm -hmm. 
to me, it was a practice of equanimity and being able to stay in my center. And it worked for a while. And I grew in many different ways. However, what motherhood did for me is that through the physical pregnancy of my body changing shapes and transforming and then birthing my daughter, I had a natural birth and I didn't have any <clears throat> pain medication, so I fell to everything. And it was a profound, incredible experience. And looking back, my theory is that the body just completely expands and opens like a portal to make room and space to allow this human being to come through you. And in so doing, this crystallized mind got stretched to its limits, mm. literally got joints opened, everything physically expanding and opening. And so whatever I had cleverly stuffed inside now bubbled up to the surface and was like, hey, you remember me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from 20 years ago or I'm from 15 years ago and you didn't deal with me and here I am, hello. <laughs> and coming out right when there's sleep deprivation and there's just so much flux and change in the life where the threshold to stay in one center is very thin and there's mm. not a lot of bandwidth or resilience to do that. And then here's all this stuff that bubbles up. And now I'm trying to remember what your original question was. Yeah, how did my practices help me and how did they not? What I found at that time was that because all that had opened, I was overwhelmed and it was like a tsunami of emotions that could get triggered very easily. And it was like I had no bandwidth or resilience to be able to stay in my center the way that I could before. So it was like a tsunami of emotions that could get triggered very easily. And I didn't have the bandwidth or resilience to be able to stay in my center like I could before. And I found that I didn't, it's not that the tools of yoga didn't help me. However, like I didn't have the same practice. I didn't have, I didn't have the same nourishment of my tools that I had before. Whereas as I was describing earlier, I could spend hours with my practice. And if you can do that every day, wow, what powerful reminders and reflections to your subconscious of how to stay centered. But I didn't have, my dedicated practice time anymore. I didn't have my me time to recharge my energy. So that had already changed. And the tools that I was very familiar with following my breath, trying to find ways to be centered, present in the moment, it didn't seem to make the tsunami go away. It was where I realized this is bigger than me. And this is bigger than the practices that I'm familiar with. There would be times where I experienced panic attacks and hyperventilating and feelings of in incredible overwhelm, feelings of rage that I was not used to. It was like all the anger I might have ever had in my whole life suddenly accumulated together into a fierce ball of rage that could be triggered by the smallest thing. And that's when I saw my, the tools that I'm used to using, they do not seem like they're really cut out for helping me deal with this. This just feels bigger than me. And it took some time for me to come to that realization because I was a bit stubborn with it too, thinking that of course following my breath has to work. If I could just be more mindful, 
I would be able to get on top of this. But there were so many factors and variables at play. And eventually I realized actually I need some support because this is, this is bigger than my practices and bigger than me. And I found amazing support through doing body talk, through working with a somatic trauma therapist as well. And that was able to help refine the tools that I had so that I manage the tsunamis and be able to find a way to lean into them and to learn from them so that then they became less and less. And then it became easier to be in my center and rely on my practices. So I never let go of my practices, but I had to expand them a little bit. And I also had to ask for some external support and help to be able to fill up again, to find a new threshold and a new way of working through a lot of the things that had, had not been worked through in my earlier years. So you shared with me before, but I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing with the audience, that you also mentioned you had some challenging times before. So you were saying that you like suppressed everything and put everything down. What were some of those things that you suppressed down that came up and bubbled up? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to share about that. Yeah, what were some of the things that I had buried and not dealt with? I would say the there are several big ones. Probably the biggest was that I experienced quite an intense period of sexual abuse in my life, and I never saw any help over that, and I didn't ever seek professional support. <clears throat> but I had somehow worked my way through it using spirituality to come to a place where I could be content with myself and move on. But I see looking back, that's how I could deal with it then, but it didn't resolve it. And so mm -hmm. childbirth somehow opened up a lot of that. So many interesting things happen with childbirth. One is through your physical body and is coming through the vaginal canal and natural birth. And to me, if there's been any trauma there, that's going to trigger a lot of things It can trigger. Also, this feeling of your body not being your own anymore. So body autonomy is lost, especially depending on how you choose to raise a baby. For me, I was co-sleeping, I was baby wearing, I was breastfeeding on demand. And so the body at the autonomy is lost in that way. There's always some, but a little human that is wanting your body without permission, right? So a lot of this kind of gets, I see how it can get triggered. For me, it got triggered very easily through that process. <clears throat> so there is a lot of unresolved sexual trauma that I needed to process. And through that, there was a lot of anger and rage. There were things that were left over from my divorce that I had gone through, which I also never had really dealt with. I had somehow found so much refuge in running satsanga that it was easier for me to put all my love and energy into satsanga rather than grieve the fact that a 12-year marriage had dissolved and so there was a lot that was around that as well. Mm -hmm. I would say those are the kind of the biggest things for me. And there's, I've had a history of sexual abuse. So there was other things in my life that like 
it was like a collective had all come. And so that's where I needed to finally face some things. And how did Amber deal with it? She held space for others and focused on meditation and breath and the joy of life and all these beautiful things. And that was just my way of, of not dealing with things and being able to still stay on my centers. I'm not, I'm just not going to deal with it. So the, these kinds of things were all cleverly stuffed inside. I'm really hoping that you would feel comfortable in sharing like some of the, what essentially made you like seek out professional help and made you think that it was beyond your like limits or beyond your practices? In a very candid way I can share, which is probably not what people imagine when they look at me, but when I realized I needed help was when I was having and performing acts of self-harm. And this was in my, the early years of being postpartum. So this was in the early years of postpartum and it didn't happen super frequently, but I would say every few months it was cyclical. Some of this rage that was getting triggered that I spoke about before, it really felt like an, a tsunami of emotions that was so huge and it would crash over me and I felt I was drowning. And in those moments, the most severe, my vision would go black, the sound would go black, I would go inside myself. I was trying to focus on my breath because that's what I knew. Looking back now, I see that made things worse, actually. It escalated what I was feeling inside because I was so present with what I was feeling inside that I couldn't escape it. And it was too much for me. And it was so incredibly intense, the feeling of rage for me, it was rage. It wasn't fear or actually panic, even though we call these panic attacks, but it wasn't panic. It was immense anger and rage and so much in that microsecond that it would feel like white hot lava, like not just red lava, but like white hot lava running through my veins. And it was so incredibly intense that all I wanted to do was to escape my body and get out of that and relieve the pressure immediately. And so thoughts would come in of how to do that. And it felt like these are not my thoughts, but somehow they came in and at the moment it felt like, yes, this is right. So I want to slash my arm. I want to cut myself to relieve the pain. And when I would do that, like the feeling of cutting myself relieved so much of that anger like in split seconds it was like a valve would open and it would relieve oh, wow. so that i could come back into my grief and into my sorrow and i would be flooded with cortisol and if i would arrive back and then just be with my tears and my sadness rather than this overwhelming wave of rage that is terrifying and so there i was doing self-harm in those moments but somehow irrationally thinking that this was saving me from the tsunami and so whether that was to my arm or whether it was hitting myself against a wall or a bookshelf or something that was there or my head to the wall there there were moments looking back i 
I'm even sad to say these things out loud to see the harm that I did to this beautiful body that has served me so incredibly much, but it wasn't rational. And in my calmer moments, and to give some context, this kind of episode would happen once every few months. So it's not like it was a daily thing. It was cyclical and it happened every few months over a period of years, but it wasn't every day. And that's why it was so difficult to get on top of it because I couldn't figure out when it was going to happen. I didn't know my triggers. I think looking back, it was linked a lot to sleep deprivation and malnourishment, probably from the extended breastfeeding. And I had an autoimmune condition as well. I still do. That had flared up at that time and I didn't know. So there was a lot of hormonal things happening. So it was a big, a big soup and then the, a lot of stress in the current marriage a lot of stress financially no support isolation the way society set up there's so many different variables that are here but it was in those calmer moments when i would reflect on what was happening that it, suddenly it was like oh <laughs> this isn't healthy like I have scars on my arm. This is something is happening here. This is bigger than me. And I've given myself some opportunity and tries to be able to manage it, but obviously it still keeps happening. So I really need some support and help. And it, my husband was supportive in his own way, but also unfortunately he's was part of the triggers. There were some dynamics that were going on there and also what he started to represent from all the males in my life that had perpetrated me and my body. And so there was a lot wrapped up in what he started to represent. So he couldn't be the one to support me because he was actually interdependently involved. And so mm -hmm. I thankfully, a wiser part of myself said, you need help and you have to find a way to get it. And finances were an issue and everything's expensive in Singapore and we have no insurance. and. I didn't want just the free counseling. I tried to go there and it was not understanding me and I couldn't connect. But luckily I came across a woman who was willing to work on an exchange with me. And she's a somatic trauma therapist in Singapore, Natalia Rachel. And I started working with her. And then I also started working with Body Talk with a woman named Sufan. And all these modalities helped me so much to be able to start to process what I was going through. I started working with a conscious couples coach who helped my partner and I and me individually. Her name is Cornelia Dehentian in Singapore. She's excellent. So these angels came around and helped me to be able to unravel the thread of some unresolved trauma to start to get to the root of things and to realize, Cornelia helped me realize that falling back on my breath practice in those moments of overwhelm made things worse because it's like I would go into my breath and see that the breath was not there. And only all what was there was an intense emotion, but I would have gone so internal that I was in the storm. So much harder to get out. Whereas she taught me some really beautiful techniques of just in those moments of overwhelm, look to the side, eyes open, describe what I see. I see a white wall. I see a blue, a blue circular ball with lines on it. I see a brown baseboard that's rectangular. So describing what I see to the left and to the right as a way to reorient the conscious brain 
to come back into a rational place because going into the emotions and the breath and the inner world was, is quite irrational. Mm. So that was a method that helped me a lot. And once mm. I could come back into the conscious part of and rational part of my brain, then I was able to access a place of being centered and present. But I had to go that route rather than trying to do it from inside in the moment of the storm. So this rage that you speak of was actually reflected in several of the conversations. So you're definitely not alone in this. I think it would help a lot of people actually to hear how maybe other tools that also helped you get back or like things like even the string, like going back, following the thread, like the thread of the story. Could you share a little bit about that practice or any other practices that helped you to yeah. either deal with the rage or yeah, just how you were able to come back to center? Yeah, I would love to talk so much about this because you're right. I'm not alone in it. There, there are so many postpartum women especially who are dealing with rage and it's not something that we really hold space for in conversations in our society now we can start to talk about postpartum depression a little bit we can talk a little bit about anxiety fear and panic but rage is a topic that most people are not comfortable to talk about and there's a lot of shame that's around it and certainly i felt tons of shame. I felt like such a hypocrite that here I was having a profession of yoga and meditation and everyone around me views me as Angel Amber who is in and could not possibly raise her voice. So I had to dismantle a lot of things and come to terms with my own shame. So this is the number one step is just compassion for yourself that you are a human being. Okay, I put it in terms of me. I am a human being. I am whole, I have shadow and light, I have polarities, I have relativity, I have emotions that swing on a spectrum. I am, I, my imperfection is what makes me perfect. And this is me, I am human, I am whole, I am an embodied human. And I own the fact that I have rage, that I have anger, I have grief, I have sorrow, I have excitement, ecstasy, wildness, craziness, joy, and I have all these things and everything in between. First step there. Second step, making that compassion a little larger to see your context and your circumstances. Are you a new mother? Are you three years, four years, five years postpartum? You're still a new mother. This is still new. You are still becoming. We are, we are born as a mother as we have our baby, but we are becoming mother over years. And some experts will say it takes five years before you start to really settle into your motherhood and feel established in this new identity. It's not six weeks. It's not this crazy time period that so many supposed experts give us that six weeks we need to bounce back and we're going to be back to our old self. So recognize Right. So recognizing that there is no returning back, that's, the, that's another important step. There's no returning back. The river has moved. The current has moved. We are not going back to who we were before, and we're not meant to because we crossed a bridge that we cannot go back on. It was a rite of passage. And so acknowledging we are not going back to where we were and looking at the context 
what has been set up for us in our society, in our culture that is making things so hard. We are no longer living in a village. We are no longer with intergenerational family and support, learning how to be a mother from our mothers and aunts and grandmothers and sisters. We're, we are not transferring that knowledge the same way we did before. And on top of that, we're bombarded by information on how to do everything perfectly. And so there is a hypervigilance with motherhood now and lack of a support, systemic problems that we have culturally and societally that really put a lot of pressure on new mothers. So take a step back and look at this context, look at the sleep deprivation that you have and, if, and what kind of nourishment is in your body. What are you trying to do on your own? problems in your relationship, etc. So I say all this to whew, take a deep breath and find the compassion for ourselves. that of course you're having a hard time. How could you not be with the way that everything is set up right now? And we're so quick to give the label of postpartum depression, but what if we separate that label for a moment and we just call out the systemic problems that we have in our society and culture with the lack of support for new mothers and the expectations that we have put onto their heads. So compassion for yourself, compassion for your context where you are. Let's be a little easy on ourselves there. And then if we want to start to get a hold on things, first of all, it's not just the mother that needs to be fixed. I was so resentful of this actually, of even my beautiful partner who meant so well, trying to say, Amber, can you, how can you find your centers? Because you don't have your practices. You need to do this and that. Yeah, it, okay, there's some things for me to take responsibility for, but there's also in the wider context, there's some responsibility that needs to be shared by our partners, by our, family, by our culture, by our society. So let's not be so quick to pathologize everything, but instead to be like, wait, what's the bigger problem here that's contributing? Go into self-reflection and be accountable for your stuff. I always just like to get people to get your shit together, <laughs> get your own yeah, shit together. There's a lot. It's interdependent. This is an interdependent story for sure. So for the woman who wants to find her way out of this, as we have this wider aperture of compassion, and then we start to come to ourselves. okay, what can I do right now? I can't control what my partner does. I can't control what society does. So what can I do in the immediacy? One is to try, if at all possible, to get more sleep. Like the sleep is so important. And this is not always easy and not always doable. It depends on how much support you have and what's happening in your family environment. But getting more sleep and getting nutrients and a balanced diet, they, this goes a long way to help to give us a little threshold. In the moment of an attack, a rage attack, let's say, or when you feel that tsunami of emotions, that tool I just gave right now, I found is so incredibly simple and powerful. And it just requires you look to one side, turn the head, describe out loud what you see, the qualities. Don't give things names like I see a ball, I see a wall. Not just labeling things, but actually describe the qualities because that's what helps you get into the rational part of the brain, the conscious part. So you look to the right, you look to the left, you spend time describing what you, letting that bring you back into the present moment. For some people, they might use different tools that help bring them back. It could be feeling sensation in their feet or their hands, or maybe it is following the breath. 
whatever anchor works for you to bring you back, I'm a proponent of having the eyes open in this moment. If you're feeling a tsunami of emotion, having the eyes open so that you can really come back into this outer world as a little breath of fresh air to get your bearings. This would be immediately. So following that, finding a way to settle the nervous system. And that's where once you feel grounded and you've arrived, then maybe you can follow the breath or even use humming, use your feet, walk a little bit, whatever you can do to settle the nervous system and to be able to bring that cortisol down a little bit and to come back. Finding I, have a, I had a thought I just wanted to throw out there. So nervous system, when I think of nervous system, I think breath, but you already mentioned that no breath in this moment because it will intensify the emotions. How about a bath? like a warm bath, do you think that, that would have helped? Warm in, uh, bath following, like in the moment of an emotional overwhelm, you honestly, for me and my experience, you don't have any rational thinking. So all the lifeline that you have, it's out of reach. Even to go do a bath is totally out of reach in that moment of overwhelm, to be able to physically walk somewhere, to see if a bath is ready, to turn the water on to yeah. make a bath. All of Got this is, is out of reach. However, I think a few steps later, this could be wonderful. If there's that possibility to be alone, to have alone time. Yes, yeah, so it depends on the context of what's happening. But I think immediately, if you're in the overwhelm, you have to find a way to come out and into the rational part of the brain. Then the self-tending after that is really important to deal with the cortisol outflow that's been there and to be able to settle the nervous system. So that's where a bath or a walk or humming or something or following the breath might be helpful. So that's all the acute, but the chronic, the long-term, that's where the deeper work is. And it's not overnight and it takes mm -hmm. a lot of courage and a lot of right support to be able to go into those dark places that we all have. And I think, um, finding out like if you mentioned the thread so following the thread to start to understand your triggers what are your triggers what are the triggers that create the perfect storm whether it's from your side regarding sleep or food or a time in your cycle or whatever your personal triggers are that make you your threshold a little weaker and then what are the triggers that other people or other situations are doing so that we start to learn from them? What is this trigger about and what's really behind it? And that's where we start to follow the thread. And so for me, I started to realize that it was a lot to do with boundaries and feeling that my boundaries were crossed, um, that I didn't have the autonomy that I needed that my no was not heard, which kind of goes back to, for me, to the sexual trauma where my no was not respected. So it, I'm not saying every woman has sexual trauma at the root, but I know a lot do. And I think one thing that every woman can relate to is her boundaries being crossed in some way or another. That yeah. will hands down every... I hear all the sisters being like, amen to that. I don't yeah. know a single woman whose boundary has not been tested or crossed, if gently, but also severely, like yeah. various degrees of boundaries being crossed. So 
I don't think a single woman wouldn't be able to relate to this. Yeah, that's right. And we have an opportunity to start to declare our boundaries. And even with our babies, which I was trying to learn, even with our babies, we have a right to create our boundary when we are touched out, when we need a little break, when we need a pause, all the ways that we can be kind to ourselves and demarcate our boundaries for our own body autonomy and for our needs well we are self modeling that to our babies as well we are teaching our babies self-worth when we can draw our own boundaries and that was a nice mm. shift for me to be able to see that yeah yeah i guess these would be some of my recommendations i just wanted to strengthen the last point because we recently, uh, in the membership portal, we spoke to an expert on early childhood education. And one of the things that I found really fascinating, one of the reasons why I invited her was she was actually talking, she had a very interesting perspective on consent of like with the baby that every time you change the baby, like you actually need to tell the baby that you are changing it and that you're going to take it off and then you're going to wipe him like so it's like you're narrating what you're doing and then for them to be mirrored that so that they know that if someone else is not doing that and just like grabbing things or touching things or doing things to you then this is not okay and so it was from babyhood which that was that to me was like oh wow that's how early we need to start teaching these things and that's where like when you say something like that where I can hear a lot of the women once you say that like you had to create your own boundaries like a lot of women I I would I like feel like a surge of fear or guilt immediately just like thinking that they would do that but actually exactly what you said like when you set these boundaries you are mirroring forth as an example how to how to like set boundaries for your body so that the child also learns how to set boundaries with other people. You don't ever demonstrate to them that your body is done or touched out. Then they don't see how someone can express that to be able to do it themselves when they're not feeling like they need to do it because they can only do what they see. They observe, not what you say to them always, but it's like they observe how you behave. So I just really wanted to emphasize this point of how it is not just care for one, but it is care for all. And it is care for everyone to be in this space. And even though I find it's so funny that it's coming in this conversation between two yogis, is talking about boundaries when we know we're all one. And we know that our identities are all garbage and we're used to just letting it go. And yet we're here talking about boundaries. It's so funny. But at the same time, it's not in, what's the word? Like, it's not, it's consistent with each other. Like, yes. You're right. It's not exclusive. They go together. Exactly. The only way, this is actually so many beautiful bits of wisdom that you had in there. First on that note, yes, we are all one. We are all one. However, we also need to live in this world, which is a relative world. So this is the where I got lost a little bit in Advaita Vedanta is this idea of they're not. Right. And so exactly. 
Yes, that is on one level of reality. We can say that's at the source level, but that's not where we live. We live here in this world, which is relative. So we also need to take care of the relativity that's here. The only way to truly see this connection in others is when we have that connection to ourself. So it needs to be defined. Self needs to be defined. So we have our boundaries. The boundary is what allows us through relativity to know the mm. center, to know the self. When we can know that and access that, then I can see me in you. Then I can see. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You just nailed that. That's so powerful. Definitely for my fellow yogi sisters and stuff like that. Because I've several women have also shared with me their physical traumas and they were expressing shame to me that they or like they not they were expressing shame but also just compassion for the other the for the per perpetrator and i was like bitch no you gotta get mad no that was fucked up what happened to you that was fucked up that was fucked up we can be compassionate as yogis for sure yes but it is not an exclusion to your rage first Feel yeah. compassion later, but your rage, the injustice of that act must be expressed because it's yeah. unjust yeah. because it's, yeah. un if, if you just skip to compassion, you skip truth, which yeah. is the foundation of all human virtues. And in yoga, it's the second universal vow. So it's yeah. up there. It's That's up right. there. Yeah, that's right. And I would say that this would be spiritual bypassing if you could just go straight to the compassion. I'm all for compassion, but I do agree that it has to be a process and it has to be an authentic process, an authentic manifestation of a feeling. And if we are being honest, usually that's not the very first feeling when it comes to trauma and when it comes to personal rights and injustice that's occurred. So I think it is important to give space for these true feelings to be able to come up. How we deliver them is another thing. It depends on the situation and the context, but there's a lot to unpack there. And yeah. also I think with the, the children, it is such an important point. And yes, it starts from babies. It starts from these little tiny human beings that we have that we are modeling our behavior to and modeling how to be in this world. It does start, and I'm a huge fan of consent to babies when you are changing their diaper, when you are going to pick them up. Even as a child gets bigger, I'm not a fan of saying, give so-and-so a hug, say, give a kiss goodbye to so-and-so. No, you, nobody has to force you to do that, and we don't need to put that onto our children. So definitely finding ways to model body autonomy and boundaries, mm. self-worth. This is what comes from the parents. We model this to our children. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Amber, I feel like I could talk to you about this for like ever. But it's so funny, like when I was having this conversation, I was thinking how hard it was going to be for me to watch you say these things because the first time hearing it, it was tender on my heart. And it's funny that, not funny, I want to say funny is the word, but I found it really interesting that what touched me in our conversation today is when you were sharing about the tools and how much I know it's going to help the other mothers. 
And I was thinking that I don't think you, no one can foresee like what's going to happen. But what I felt from this conversation is that women are going to hear this and that shame of that rage is going to be diminished or hopefully gone entirely. But then not only that, which is so powerful in just itself, but you were giving so many practical tools that I was like, oh my gosh, in the silence of the night, in the sh in their shadows, they will be able to use this. And even if someone's listening, the beauty of a podcast is that nobody, you can just listen to something and then you don't have to talk to anybody about it. It's like almost that you can resolve things by watching two people talk about it <laughs> in a sense. However, I did want to let everyone know that on Yoga Avic, the land in the land of Yoga Avic Ma, each podcast we have a blog, and beneath the blog we have a comment section for you or anyone who would like to share either your own experience or things that we were talking about this time that you had more questions of Amber or more questions about what was going on or any other comments of like me too and whatnot. We want to hear it and we want you to please go to the blog like this. I keep forgetting to say this at the, I usually want to say this at the beginning of blogs so that people can, as they're listening to us, they can just commentate and join our conversation. Cause I just always want to include more people to like be together and heal together really. So if you're feeling moved to that, please go to that space. I'm sure Amber is going to be popping in. If there's any questions that you have, I'm sure she would be willing and open to share with you as well. Like how to do that in her own time in her, she has a very busy schedule. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't want to just put you out there that you're going to service all these people. I don't know who's going to come to you, Amber. <laughs> But I anticipate there will be women who feel alone in this and they will want to speak to you about this. Something, just a last question that I had. I just wanted to like <laughs> preface this. Something that I heard about self-harm, as I don't have much experience with dealing with clients with this particular aspect, is that one of the reasons why they do self-harm, at least I'm sure, I'm sure there's many reasons why people do self-harm. And I think your case is, is separate in this, but I was just wondering, I'm sure you've done several, like a lot of research on self-harm or just speaking about it more with the therapist or the, all the wonderful people that you mentioned. One thing that I heard was that one reason why people do self-harm is to actually feel in your case, I think it was for you to feel less. But I don't know if you've heard the opposite of one reason why people numb is because they've numbed themselves out, that they cut themselves to actually feel something. That like it's a way to reassure them that they exist, that they're like in this world. So yes. A part of my healing through all of this was to not just say I love my body, but to start to really take care of my body. So giving massage, oil massage, and loving my body through touch, and allowing my hands to be on my body to feel my arms, the places where I was hurting myself, to feel my legs, to feel to massage and nourish and anoint myself with oil as a way to bring compassion to my body and to 
even talk to my body and to ask for forgiveness for the ways that I took a lot of my emotions out on my body and developing a new form of, a new way of relating to my body, a way to love my body and to love myself. And that has been a really important part of this journey as well, because in those moments where I can look to the side and I can reorient myself, immediately following that was that I love my body. I am not going to hurt, I am choosing not to hurt my body. Um, that was a big part of that healing as well. And I will say that these things for me, they work and it brought me out of that. I haven't had those episodes now. My daughter just turned six and this hasn't arisen now for more than two years. Um, I'm so happy that you shared that because that's, yeah, we're out of the woods. Yeah. Hope story here. Yeah, it is. That's right. I'm going to have to go. I hear the little one behind the door and she's getting hungry. <laughs> All right, my love. Thank you so much for this. I can't wait to see what a service that this podcast episode would be for people. I already know it will. Like so many women have talked about like just disconnecting from their bodies of just their bellies from birthing a child that I think everyone can relate to that part for sure. Hi, how are you? What's your name? Aya. Maya. Oh my gosh. Aya. Aya. You know, I met you when you were a baby. But then now you're so big. You couldn't even walk. I'm six years old now. You're six? No way. No way. (laughs) We just had a birthday. Yay! Happy birthday, my love! So you're a Scorpio. <laughs> she, she doesn't know what that is yet. Well, oh, thank you. Goodness. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. It was um, such a pleasure to speak with both of you guys. Um, have a wonderful day, and I hope you get some food, little one. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thank you. All right. See you again. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm going to leave in the, the podcast blog all of Amber's information if you want to look her up. If you're in Spain, oh my gosh, I am jello and I really wish for your joy to see her. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and really benefited in some way because even after I did this interview with her, that technique that she shared of looking left and was super powerful in a very difficult period of time for me as well. And I was like, oh my God, maybe the only reason why I'm interviewing these people are to like literally help myself. But I know this will also help other people. And I really wish for as many people to hear it as possible. So please, if you know anyone who has ever suffered from postpartum mood disorders, do share it with them. Also, our episode three on the YAM podcast is also on a hospitalized mood disorder. So if you haven't listened to that already, do check it out. But this seems to be an issue that women struggle a lot with in silence. And I just, that's kind of why we wanted to showcase it on the YAM podcast to let other women know that you are not alone. This happens. And we're so grateful for both Zareen Patton in episode three and now Amber Sawyer for 
sharing their experiences because I'm really hoping that it will be a sigh of relief for people who never even got help during their difficulties or may still be going through it and might realize that they actually need to seek out help maybe after an episode like this. Do come join us in the YAM podcast blog linked in this podcast wherever you're listening to it we would love to hear your thoughts your stories your shares it's always a pleasure to hold space for things like that and for anyone who is suffering please i just want this podcast to also be a point for you to just remove your shame in asking for help if anyone is an example of this it's amber she is a professional herself to be able to seek assistance within herself and she has a lot of tools but even so we all need help from time to time so if it's me that you would like to get support from or someone else let us know how we can support you and we sincerely hope that you will get well We love you. We hope you're doing well and we will see you in the next episode.